Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. This week, connecting your brain to a computer. I imagine him moving my right hand or my left hand as soon as the computer accumulates enough evidence about the fact that I'm really willing to perform right or left, then a command is delivered and the robot turns, for instance. Plus, nuclear fusion, self-repairing batteries, and is nitrogen the next bad guy of global warming? Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and I've just returned from the AAAS conference in Washington, D.C., where I met some of the world's top scientific brains, including running into a man with wires stuck all over his face. The recognizer interprets my muscle movements. Therefore, I can talk to you by simply mouthing words. Do you have any questions? Can you now introduce yourself for me, say who you are, and uh, tell us what it is you've actually developed that we've just been listening to? My name is Michael Wand, and I am from Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, which is the largest research institution of Germany in southwestern Germany. The system you've just been listening to is a system for silent recognition of speech. And what we do, we put little electrodes in our faces. This technology is called surface electromyography because it captures the myo signals, the muzzle signals from my face. And from these signals, we can retrace what has been said. So the computer is recording the electrical signals coming off of each of the muscles as you speak. And it's working out based on the pattern of muscle activity what you must have said. That's exactly right. So the signal, which one can actually see on the screen, is fed into a, into a recognizer, into a statistical recognizer, which recognizes the pattern of the muscular activity and can retrace what was said. So you must have trained this to recognize the pattern of m- movements you would make when speaking. So if I took the electrodes off of your face and they're decorated all around your mouth, picking up all the major muscles, I presume then it wouldn't recognise what I was saying in the same way as it recognises what you're saying. That's correct. Uh, This system is geared towards me. If someone else wanted to use it, it would require a few minutes of recordings just to adapt itself. Oh, it's quite quick then. You can train it relatively fast. That's true, yes. The systems we present are based on about five, six, seven minutes of training, which actually works quite well for a sort of limited vocabulary The more training data I put into the system, the better it gets. Our best system, which we didn't bring today, takes about 45 minutes of training, which is akin to a conventional speech recognizer, which you can buy in in a shop. And that recognizes about 2,000 words. So so it's not maybe not quite as good as a traditional speech recognizer, but it's perfectly suitable for communication without actually being heard. Now, it's interesting because you're from Germany, but you're speaking to me in English. So you've trained this in English, presumably. Yes, We've trained the system in English because we are a very international institute and we came here to Washington, D.C. just to present it. It's in principle not a problem to adapt such a, such a system to any other language. It would just mean essentially changing the dictionary of pronunciation, telling the system how German is pronounced and then probably retraining it because German has got different sound patterns than English. And then it works for well, any other language, French, Spanish, whatever you get. Who do you 
see us using this? Who is this targeted at or what sort of market would this go into? So right now it's still a research project since we are a university, but there's a huge body of interest from one side from those people who have lost their voices. There is a quite large group of larynx cancer patients out there, and they can usually move their mouths quite normally, but they lack their sound source because their larynx has essentially been cut away. And these people are very, very eager to get their voices back, and there's a huge interest for them for using the system, no matter what it looks like. It's going to look much better in the future, of course, but they'd certainly be willing to use such a system. Another market would be really uh, having a system which is a bit nicer, like a little electrode headset which you can just put on. Then I might use the system, for instance, to augment my cell phone, and then I could just use it when I get a phone call and I'm in a meeting just to communicate silently. So no more shouting on trains? Exactly, yes. The only problem I can see at the moment is that it does make you look rather strange. Well, currently we are working on different kinds of electrodes together with our cooperation partners from industry and from science, and they are going to look much different in the future. Right now we are looking into electrode technologies and multi-electro technologies, which might it make possible to use much less electrodes and get a much better signal, which would also improve accuracy and make the system more robust. And what we might use is a system where I put on an, a kind of headset, which looks just like a normal microphone headset, and nonetheless contains electrodes. I can see this in about two to three years' time. He took the words right out of my mouth. That was Michael Vandt. He's from the Karlsruhe Institute for Technology in Germany. And if you want to see what he looks like, there's a picture on our Facebook page. Now, as if coming face-to-face with someone resembling a cyborg wasn't bad enough, I then met a robot driving itself down a hall pursued by two people, one of whom was wearing a hat covered in electrodes. The other was Swiss scientist Jose Del Mian. There is a general problem of providing people the capability to control prosthetic devices, small robots, wheelchairs, by decoding the uh, electrical activity of their brain that they can generate spontaneously as they uh, execute different mental tasks related to motor movements. So this is the general problem. The specific progress that we are reporting here today is the fact that through appropriate probabilistic methods, we are capable to... Uh, decode when people want to intentionally deliver the command and when they don't want to deliver any command. So as that the robot keeps doing whatever it is doing, for example, moving forward or stay stationary in front of a target. First of all, let's look at how you actually use the power of thought to control a robot. So how are you actually doing that? So what do we do is to record the so-called elect- electroencephalogram. And this is done through um, by simply putting in contact some electrodes on top of the head. Then we are using sophisticated algorithms to find patterns, prototypical patterns of electrical activity in the brain that are associated to the different mental commands that people want to deliver to the prosthetic device. And Michelle, you're wearing a hat with all these electrodes on. How does it work? Well, the hat is very simple. It's a very light hat. Uh, we use some gel. To, to ensure we, we provide a contact. And by imagining my moving my right hand or my left hand to give right and left hand commands, and as soon as the computer accumulates enough evidence about the fact that I'm really willing to perform right or left, then a command is delivered and the robot turns, for instance. So you think, I want to move my right hand. This changes the activity of certain parts of the exactly. brain which is reflected in a change in the signal picked up from the scalp by the electrodes, exactly. the computer can decode that. Exactly. That's, that's the, the most important thing is that of what you said is that this, um, this process of imaging, of imaging these movements is really, really easy. It's really, really spontaneous. Everybody can do it quite quickly. We don't need long periods of training. Actually, usually a couple of hours are enough. So how do you then translate what the computer hears in terms of the, the electric signals into what the robot does? Well, um, so we, we, con- we continuously classify uh, statistically this, uh, the information extracted from DG. Then a command is delivered to the robot. But the robot is smart, so it's not simply executing it. It, it has some, some extra sensors that are designed to, to allow easier navigation. So, for instance, equipped with cameras, and we have an obstacle detection system. The robot uh, tends to dock himself automatically as soon uh, as he... Uh, understands is in front of a person and uh, or we have uh, other kinds of proximity sensors to avoid obstacles automatically. Because in the real world of course someone wouldn't be able to think 
in excruciating detail all the time about exactly. the trajectory of the movement they want to make. So the robot's sort of doing some bits automatically, exactly. and you can influence that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's not that we are competing. I'm not competing with the robot, but the robot is providing a continuous uh, high-quality uh, aid to my, my task of navigating the environment, and I'm interacting with this modality of automatic navigation. And how long did it take you to learn to control the robot like this? Uh, the first time I tried, um, so we, we were building all the system, and the first time it took me a couple of hours to, to be able to control, well, robots, wheelchairs, keyboards, whatever. And it's not just for me. I mean, I'm, just, I'm here today, but we have more, m many more subjects and patients that can actually control uh, the very same devices with very high accuracy and speed. Michel Travello and before him Jose Dalmian. They're both from the Ecole Polytechnique Federale in Lausanne. But what about if a patient loses a body part? Can an artificial replacement be wired back up to the brain so that it can be controlled? Todd Kaiken is pioneering this very approach at the University of Chicago and I met him together with his patient Glenn Lehman and their surgeon Martin Batchelor. Our big challenge is how to control an artificial limb. You lose your arm, and we can make robotic limbs, but how do you tell it what to do? So we've developed a technique that we call targeted muscle reinnervation, where we've developed a neural interface to capture what the person wants to do with their limb. Essentially, the way it works is we take the major nerves that used to go to the amputated arm, and they're still functional. They send motor commands, and if you, if you stimulate them, you'll feel the missing arm. So we take those nerves, and we transfer them to some spare muscles in the residual limb. Those nerves will then grow into those muscles, and when they, what Glenn, for example, thinks close his hand, now his medial biceps contracts. And we can detect a signal from that muscle contraction and tell his artificial hand to close. And this way we can get much more function, and it's intuitive. He thinks close his hand, his hand closes. Glenn, can you give us a demonstration? Oh, I, I can. So, first of all, talk us through what actually happened to you and, and how long you've been using the prosthesis you've got. Um, November 1st, 2008, I lost my arm. Uh, I was on a combat patrol in Iraq. Uh, they threw an RKG-3 hand grenade at my truck. It penetrated the armor and separated or amputated my arm just above the elbow. After that, I was evacuated and uh, sent through Walter Reed, where I received treatment. Um, Dr. Batchelor and Dr. Kuyken uh, came to me and asked me if I would be a candidate for the uh, targeted muscle reinnervation surgery. And then uh, just this last week, I received this arm or went out to uh, RIC in Chicago and trained with them with this arm. Can you show us what it can do? I can raise and lower the elbow. I can rotate the hand so it's in or out. I can open and close the hand, and I can flex the wrist either in or out. And those movements are all controlled by me thinking about my phantom limb. So you're thinking about moving fingers that you no longer have but are present on the prosthesis, obviously, and those thoughts are being translated into what the prosthesis does? Yes, that's correct. Is it easy to learn to do? Uh, I have only used this arm for two weeks, so it was very easy. And what sort of resolution of movements can you manage? If I gave you some peas to pick up, could you do that? I believe I could, yes. Uh, the larger the item, the easier it is to um, actually grasp. So, I mean, if you, uh, like a bottle of water or something like that is easier. Uh, it's very hard to pinch things off a table. So, If you didn't have this, what would you have instead? And what, in what way has this enriched your life? I would just have a conventional arm. I would be able to operate the elbow and the hand, but it wouldn't be simultaneous. Um, I would only be able to cycle through each thing by switching, um, co-contracting muscles. So it's like the comparison between a minivan and a sports car. I mean, it's different categories. Martin, you had to do some of the surgery to make this feasible. What's actually involved in implementing a prosthesis like this in terms of actually rerouting the nerves to muscles and so on? Well, the, the performance of the surgery is actually very simple. Uh, the anatomy is predictable, and the procedures of transferring uh, the severed nerve to a, a healthy piece of muscle is, is quite simple. And how long does it take patients to actually begin to use and work one of these, one of these prostheses? Well, since we put the uh, severed muscle so close to the uh, severed, severed nerve so close to the new muscle, uh, it only takes a couple months before we start getting some contraction of the muscle. It may take uh, six months or maybe even a year before it fully matures and the 
connection between the brain and that newly innervated muscle is plateaued and is what it's going to be. And just coming back to you, Todd, um, in terms of actually how the, the process works, so there are actually physically electrodes which are listening to what the muscle is doing when Glenn thinks what he wants to do. That's correct. We have sets of little electrodes that are like antennas listening to his muscles. If he had had his injury 20 years ago compared with very, very recently, you got to him when it was a fresh injury, would that have made a difference to whether this could be done? On a, it, it may have. That answer isn't really for known. Um, we're comfortable doing the surgery for five or ten years after injury um, in a younger patient, but uh, w- there may be a limit someday that we'll find that, that we don't want to cross over. We know that the nerves are still viable for decades after the injury, but how good they are at regenerating is a question. And what about sensation? Because at the moment he obviously can see what he's doing, but he can't feel what he's doing. What about taking it into that domain next? We have been able to provide hand sensation for some of our amputees. What we do is cut the nerve to the skin over these nerve transfers, and then the hand sensation nerves will grow into this residual limb skin. So when you touch it, it feels like you're touching the missing hand. It's very exciting for us because it gives us the potential of putting sensors in the prosthesis to see when you touch something or how hard you're squeezing and feed that information back so that the patient feels that they're getting that touch or pressure on their missing hand. Todd Kuyken, he was with surgeon Martin Batchelor and his patient Glenn Lehman. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And this week, I'm looking at the hot discoveries announced at this year's AAAS Science Conference in Washington, D.C. On the way, batteries better than a piece of thin film and mouth and throat cancers. Why are the rates up 200% on 20 years ago? But first, we've probably all had the problem of the rechargeable battery that lasts less and less long after each recharge. Usually, it's terminal sorry about the pun, and the battery needs to be replaced, which is not ideal given how much they can cost. But now help is at hand with the equivalent of an internal band-aid for a battery. Here's Scott White. In a nutshell, what we do is we put things into batteries that make them uh, perform much, much better and a lot safer. And these little things that we put in are actually microcapsules, very, 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 very tiny Uh, little capsules. Basically, you can think of them as drugs that we put in. And uh, inside of these capsules are special materials that, when they get released, uh, make the battery healthy and last longer and be a lot safer. When you say last longer, we're not talking batteries just going flat because they've run out of juice. This is as in the ability to recharge and discharge efficiently decays with time. Exactly. Very, very well put. Um, We would like batteries to last 10 years or something like that. Um, But they certainly don't because of the charge and discharge cycling that we do to them. What's actually happening? If I were to zoom in inside the battery with some kind of very powerful microscope and I could physically see inside the battery at a molecular level, what's going on to make my batteries last much less long as they age? There's a lot of things happening. Uh, probably the simplest thing that I can explain is that there are little cracks that open up inside of that battery. So physically, particles are breaking, and physically, uh, two layers of different materials are separating. Um, there's all kinds of very uh, interesting electrochemical reactions that are undergoing at the same time. But physically, particles break, things separate, Uh, interfaces build up and the end result is that the battery can no longer give you the power that you need. But all of the ingredients are still in there and so if you could stop that happening you'd have a battery that did continue to perform well and so what you're saying is your work is directed towards stopping that battery decaying in that way. Exactly, yeah, we're, we're giving it a, a dose of loving medicine when it needs it, uh, trying to protect it. Uh, when little cracks open up, we put things in there that heal those cracks, and then your battery is like the day it was, was born, it's like new. Okay, well can you explain that then in slightly more detail? So you are literally doping the electrodes with stuff, so if an area breaks, 
it repairs itself. This is, I suppose, a bit like these self-repairing car paints where there's little capsules of various things that when they get exposed by the paint being damaged on the car surface, they heal the paint. You're doing the same at a battery level. Exactly. In fact, uh, we started with uh, the very work that you're talking about, self-healing coating, self-healing paint, self-healing polymers. And in those systems, we would put microcapsules in that would release a a monomer, a polymer uh, precursor that uh, would eventually heal that crack. So now we've translated that technology into batteries. The materials that we deliver to the battery are, of course, completely different. Uh, They have a different intended function, but it's still predicated on the same thing. We have a capsule, a very thin shell wall. Think of it as like an eggshell. And inside of our eggs are uh, materials that will lead to the restoration of battery function. In terms of uh, combating the longevity issue for this battery, we actually deliver uh, conductive particles. So there are conductive particles on the inside of these eggshells that are in suspension. And when the eggshell breaks, uh, that comes flooding out into the damage. Those particles are delivered to wherever there is damage, a crack, and it bridges that crack and it conducts electrons now, so it restores its conductivity. I suppose you have to choose the composition of those repair particles very carefully so that they don't then participate in other reactions inside the battery, which would either be unsafe or would then further, given enough time, erode the capacity of the battery. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so there's one mantra that we have in, in, in our work, and that is to do no harm. So whatever we put into the battery cannot disrupt its natural performance from the outset. Um, but what we do is uh, give it additional functionality, in this case, self-healing behavior. And with this approach applied to a battery, how much better does it become? How long can you extend the working life of a lithium cell with this? Well, I can't answer that conclusively yet because it's all very, very new. Uh, but I can, I can give you a flavor of how well this works. For example, um, uh, some of the, the initial work that we have done on restoration of conductivity shows that as, within as little as 40 microseconds, we get full restoration of conductivity. 40 microseconds, that's... An incredibly, incredibly short period of time, much, much, much faster than a hummingbird can beat its wings. And it's full restoration. It's 100% restoration of connectivity. Now, what that translates to in terms of how many more years you could use a battery, I don't know the answer yet. Uh, It's still way too new and and, uh, a little bit far away to be able to predict yet. My goal, I think, is to really uh, extend the lifetime two, three, or four times. If you did that, imagine how the economics of electric vehicles would change. Because we're not talking about uh, replacing a battery pack every three or four years now. We're talking about one battery pack that would last the, the, the entire lifetime of the car or even longer. Does this potentially also extend and expand the functionality of the battery because certain batteries can only do certain things because the current required for some applications would be way beyond the spec of the battery because the batteries would clap out in no time because they would degrade. So if you could enable them to put themselves right, does that mean that your batteries are going to be able to be used in more different things? Yeah, absolutely. It's an insightful uh, question because uh, if you push a lithium-ion battery, uh, at a very, very high rate, you see degradation mechanisms that kick in immediately and would basically toast your battery very quickly. So uh, there's uh, circuitry that's put in so that you don't actually push the battery that high. But if you could, and certainly it's capable of doing it, and it wouldn't hurt it, then all of a sudden you, you, you could use it very quickly and you could use it for a long period of time. So hopefully these kinds of functionalities will be built into the next generation of batteries and, and they'll give you everything you ever wanted. Scott White from the University of Illinois. But how are new batteries developed in the first place? My name is Christine Pearson. I work at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory uh, in California. I look at materials and I try to predict their properties from quantum mechanics uh, in a computer and see if they work well for batteries. While we have lithium-ion batteries that work today, they're too expensive uh, or they have too little energy density, depending on how you want to see it. 
to be actually viable as electric cars for the everyday person. So although we think batteries have got enormously better now because, I mean, the phones that we're walking around with are drawing so much current that you could never manage something like that 10 years ago. We can do that now, but even so, a car is a totally different kettle of fish. Yeah, you need a ton more. I mean, the, if you look at the battery packs for electric vehicles, the whole car is stuffed with them. There is, they have a problem finding space for these things. They're, they're putting them underneath the, the seats and stuff to, to make place for them. Uh, they're, so they're huge. So if we can find materials that are smaller, you know, less volume or cheaper or have more energy density per volume, that, that would help. And how are you trying to do that? So I... Um, try to design new materials in the computer and I can calculate the properties that are important for battery electrode materials like voltage and capacity and stability and they release oxygen at um, basically safety. I can calculate all those properties and I can screen the materials and find the ones that actually work well as electrode materials and then I can ask my colleagues to try and make them. So your work basically happens inside a computer. You are taking a molecular structure or an ionic structure and you then ask, how would this perform under various conditions? Exactly. And you're trying this for lots of different chemicals. You basically pluck stuff off the periodic table and say, well, what combos are going to give the right sort of voltage and the right sort of energy density? Yeah, and, you know, we partly use our own intuition, but we also have by now a huge database of more than 100,000 computed structures, and we can data mine that and see which structures are usually stable, which ones, which elements give good voltage in the voltage ranges that we're interested in, and so on, and we can sort of filter down the different possibilities. Have you come up with any promising ones? We actually have. Um, we have a few that we predicted to be to be promising. We asked our people in the lab to make them. They were actually able to make a few of them. They're not performing as well as we would like them to yet, so they're not contenders for being good, but they are performing as battery materials. What do you think is wrong? It's hard to know. Um, if you had asked uh, Professor Goodenough from Texas what was wrong with lithium iron phosphate when he first found it, he would have said basically, oh, everything. It's a bad material. Um, it, it, um, it takes a long time to optimize these things. It could be anything from interaction with the electrolyte surface properties. It could also be that some of the things that we predict, for example, phase stability as you move lithium in and out, is not quite as well characterized as we would like it to be. This sounds very reminiscent of the way in which drug discovery and design has gone because in the old days people used to do a bit of clever chemistry, make something and then inject it into a rat to see what happened. These days people take molecules that they know could exist, they screen them against targets, things that we know about various cells and so on, and pick out the juicy looking ones, give them to a chemist to make and then try them. So this is sort of the battery equivalent of making Viagra or something. You're, you're exactly right. We got the idea from the drug uh, discovery uh, process, and we're actually calling our giant project the materials genome. And do you use the same sort of approach they do then? In, in a sense, yes. So we, we compute, we've compute everything that we know in nature and the properties of these materials, and then we data mine to see which ones actually correlate with good behavior, the ones that we're looking for. Yeah. How long do you think it'll be before you come up with something that will mean that my phone weighs a good deal less and can do a good deal more? That's a good question. So um, on average it takes about 15 years for material from discovery to it, to it hitting the market. Uh, so if I find something today, it'll take you it'll take 15 years before you have it in your hand. Even so, we've still come a long way since the voltaic pile, that's for sure. That was Christine Pearson from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. We'll be back to batteries in a minute, but first to something that's even more powerful, nuclear fusion. The world is united behind a project called ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Later this decade, it will attempt to recreate on Earth the physics that powers the sun. The aim is to harness fusion power to produce electricity. Brad Nelson is the chief engineer for the US arm of the project. The nuclear power stations we have now are based on the fission process. Heavy nuclei are split to release energy and the famous E equals MC squared equation. Whereas fusion occurs on the sun where lighter elements are fused to form heavier elements and to give off power. I suppose one of the problems though is that the sun is a million Earths. The temperature at the centre is really quite high. The pressure is huge. And we're trying to do what the sun does on the scale of a star on the surface of the Earth. That's correct. What the sun uses is gravitational attraction to confine the fuel 
to create very high densities, as you just mentioned. But in reality, the temperatures in the ITER reaction will be higher than they are in the sun, about 200 million degrees. This is to make the particles move a lot faster so that they hit each other harder and can get closer together so you'll get those nuclei to fuse together, which the sun does, as you say, by squeezing things very hard with gravity. We've got to do it another way. That's correct. We use a plasma, which is a conducting high-temperature gas that we then confine with magnetic fields. Certainly at 200 million degrees, there's no material that will withstand that temperature. So we must be very careful to keep the plasma away from any kind of a wall. So talk us through the process. What chemically will go into the reactor? What would be the process that happens? What will come out apart from heat and energy? Well, the fuel that we will use in the ITER reactor are deuterium and tritium. They're heavy isotopes of hydrogen. Deuterium is found in seawater. We've heard of heavy water. Well, deuterium is a hydrogen isotope in heavy water. And then tritium is a, a more unstable isotope, which has to be created. In this case, if you bombard lithium with neutrons, you can create tritium. And so in future reactors, where we want to be self-sufficient in fuel, we would have a tritium breeding blanket around the outside of the plasma where the neutrons would interact, create tritium, and the process would be self-sustaining. And the tritium and the deuterium are fused together to make what? In the reaction, the tritium and deuterium fuse together, making an alpha particle or a helium nucleus, which has a fair amount of energy, and then a, a high-energy neutron, 14 MeV neutron. So it's a, it's a very energetic neutron and has some issues with damaging materials. So materials issues are a big problem. And what ITER is trying to discover is whether the alpha particle or the helium nucleus, which is charged, will remain in the plasma long enough to give off its energy and heat the new fuel coming in and keep the reaction sustained. Can you then talk us through exactly how it will work? So if I were to set foot in the core of what will be the fusion reactor in ITER in the future, what will I see? What will be there? The ITER is what's called a tokamak, which is a toroidal magnetic device. So imagine a donut, which you surround with very strong electromagnets, creating a very high electromagnetic field. You first create a plasma by heating up some uh, very rarefied gas inside the donut, ionizing it, and then you gradually induce a very high current in the gas, in this case, 15 million amps. So we have a plasma with 15 million amps inside of a very strong magnetic field, and this provides a magnetic bottle, if you will, that contains the plasma, keeps it in the core of the reactor and away from the walls. We then continue to heat the plasma until it reaches the uh, thermonuclear conditions, which allow the fuel to fuse. The neutrons come out. The neutrons hit the wall, we absorb the power in the walls, carry the heat away in, in uh, water in the case of ITER, but in future reactors it would probably be helium. And that power then would be used to run turbines and generate electricity. It's being built in France, isn't it? That's but it's an international project. Yes. Yes, it's an international project. It involves roughly half the world's populations uh, are living in, in countries whose government has subscribed to build ITER. So the European Union is involved. Japan is involved, Russian Federation, the U.S., Korea, China, and India are all involved in this uh, effort. And dare I ask the price tag? Well, uh, it's hard to say exactly because uh, the countries are providing the equipment for the project as an in-kind contribution. So rather than all send money and have the project buy the equipment, the, the parties to the agreement are actually sending the equipment itself. So the exact cost is a little hard to say, but in round numbers, it's something around $20 billion. Two or three LHCs. I suppose that would be right, yes. So not cheap, but if it does deliver, then the future energy savings will be huge. That was Brad Nelson, ITER's chief engineer. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the naked scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and we're catching up with all the big breakthroughs unveiled at the 2011 AAAS Science Conference in Washington. In a moment, why nitrogen's a troublemaker. First, a radical new way to store energy, which kicks off with a demonstration. Initial long One, two, three, four, five seconds. Disconnect. Set the time. 
start. All right. My name is Sangbok Lee, and I'm uh, a professor of chemistry at the University of uh, Maryland. Basically, this gadget is a very thin film, and inside that thin film, about 20 micron thin film, there is a millions and millions of nanoscale pillars, and each individual nanopillar is composed of uh, two different materials as a coaxial structures. So one inside the other. You've got one wrapped around the outside exactly. of a chemical inside. So what's on the inside of these pillars? So the inside core is manganese oxide, which is famous battery material, and outer shell material is conductive polymer. So each material has its own functions and can help each other synergistically to maximize energy storage properties in this case. So how does it actually work as an energy storage vessel? How do you put energy in? Basically, how I put the energy in is applying a voltage, just like charging our battery. And chemically, when you connect that to a battery like you did with your stopwatch for five seconds, what did the current flowing into the fin film do to it? Right. Applying the voltage will oxidize these materials, basically changing its oxidation state to a different state. After you disconnect this charging process, now it has a stored electrical energy here, and now you reconnect to a other device like a stopwatch here. It releases its stored charge to the device and made the device work. What are you trying to solve by doing this like this? Why do you think these are a useful design? Important thing of this device design is high power. As you know, the lithium ion itself has a high energy density but pretty low power density. But we need high powers these days. For example, the renewable energy, sunlight or wind turbine, they produce this energy intermittently. So if you use just a lithium-ion battery to store the energy from the wind turbine, then you actually lose a lot of uh, peak spike energy. You cannot store them all. However, using a high-power device like this one, you can actually scavenge all those peak power energies from the wind turbine or solar cells and so on. So how are you doing that? What is it about this design that enables you to do that? Two things. One is nanoscale. Nano means it's really tiny, small feature of material so that ion transport through the nanoscale is really fast. Fast means high current, so high power. Another theme is two different materials. So each material has their own function. They help each other synergistically to deliver these fast ion and electron transfer. So when you describe this as a coaxial structure with this conducting polymer around the outside of the manganese oxide in the middle, because they are very small-scale structures, you've got lots of surface contact. Is that how you're able to get these very high currents flowing so that you can, you can have this peak power? That's correct, partly, pretty much. About maybe 70 80% is correct. Another feature is since total diffusion or transport path length of this ion in the nanoscale is really short, so it happens really quick. That's why. And I see the clock watch that you're powering with this from a five-second charge-up of this thing which just looks like a microscope slide, very, very thin, is still running. Yep. I mean, obviously, that's a very low-current device. Mm -hmm. But how long till you can scale this up so we can run big devices like a laptop rather than a stopwatch with it? Right now, as a chemist, as we haven't really thought about deeply of the large scales. However, still we're also working on how we make this device scale up, and the size of uh, the thing that we can imagine is about meter by meter, so then it will be easily employed to large power devices too. How do you make this? Is it easy? It's a very, very simple way because we're using a very thin membrane that has cylindrical pores, self-aligned, and you fill up the material inside the pore, and then you just remove the template, then you have a final millions of pillars on the surface. So it's very simple to fabricate, so you could scale this relatively easily? I guess so. And time scale? Well, right now we're in the process of uh, forming a company, so I would say five years. Sangbok Lee, 
And that stopwatch was still running 10 minutes later following a five-second charge of that tiny battery that literally resembled a piece of film. To human health now and mouth and throat cancers. Traditionally, these have been largely associated with using tobacco products. But in the last 20 years, the incidence of the diseases has doubled, especially amongst young people. And scientists studying the tumours have found an unexpected change. Over 90% of them contain the genetic signature of the human papillomavirus, HPV, which is much more commonly associated with causing cervical cancer in women. Scientists think that people having oral sex is spreading the virus to the mouth, where it then triggers tumours in the same way that it does in the cervix. Mara Gillison is from Ohio State University and was one of the first people to spot this trend. In 2000, we published the first compelling research that HPV is a cause of oropharynx cancers. And in 2007, uh, we published a study in which we compared the behaviors of people with cancer uh, to the behaviors of people without cancer. And we found that oral sexual behavior uh, was associated with risk of oropharynx cancer. Uh, In that study, we estimated that an individual with an oral HPV-16 infection had about a 15-fold increase in risk for oropharynx cancer. The fact that most of these cancers occur in men We're trying to increase awareness that HPV is not solely a problem for the women of the world, uh, that the men of the world need to wake up and recognize that they are also at risk for cancers caused by HPV infection. So the same forms of HPV, because it's quite a big family of viruses, isn't it, can translocate from one bit of the body, be applied to another, and they're equally pathogenic there. Right. Right. HPV is a very unusual virus in that it doesn't travel through the bloodstream. It's spread by direct human-to-human contact. So an individual can become infected in their intergenital region from an infected partner. Uh, And depending on their behaviors, that infection can also be transferred to the oral cavity. How do you know, or what's the evidence, that these tumors are now being caused by HPV and weren't before? Well, that's a very good question. What we know from the United States is that as of about 2005, 64% of oropharynx cancers are caused by HPV infection. We also know that in the United States over the last 20 years, the incidence of these cancers has increased by approximately 200%. We do not know through direct measurement of tumors over calendar time that that increase is caused by HPV in the United States. However, our colleagues in Scandinavia have shown from their tumor banks that in the 1970s, about 23% of tonsil cancers in Stockholm had HPV in them, and by about 2005, that had increased to 93%, so a 70% increase over a pretty short period of time. What about if something else was making the cancers happen in the mouths of the individuals who are affected and those cells being abnormal are more vulnerable to getting infected with HPV and if people are just having more oral sex which is transmitting it that maybe the effect you're seeing is just because the HPV sees more cells it can infect so you detect it? Right, I think the question you're asking me is there any evidence that uh, HPV is there but not really the cause And we've been able to demonstrate that the HPV is really specific to the tumor uh, and that the tumor and the virus have what's called a clonal relationship. If you look at each tumor cell, it has the same HPV in it, um, and it's often integrated into the genome and integrated in the same place, indicating that there was one kind of preceding event, uh, and then that clonal outgrowth turned into the tumor. Uh, We can look at it also visually because we've now developed very sensitive techniques for looking actually for the presence of the virus specifically in the tumor. Uh, And we can create these beautiful pictures of the pathology showing the actual HPV in the nucleus of each tumor cell and not anywhere else in the surrounding normal tissue. So it's now accepted that the virus is indeed present in these tumors, uh, that it's causal, Um, and it's not just a a passenger or coincident infection. Why has the rate gone up so much in men? 
but less in women? That is the multi-million dollar question of the hour. Uh, We really don't understand why that is. Uh, We do know from women that hormonal influences do dramatically affect uh, what happens to an HPV infection in the anogenital um, canal. So uh, given gender is really the most profound hormonal difference in humans, uh, we really do wonder whether or not the natural history of infection might be different by men or women. The alternative explanation is that sexual behavior differences uh, in men and women may account for it. In support of that is all of the studies we've done to date looking at infection. Uh, Men have about a threefold increase in risk of oral infection compared to women, and that's about the ratio of men to women with a cancer, about three to one. Do you think that men being circumcised makes a difference? Because it protects the female partner against cervical cancer. So if the person is shedding less HPV because they're circumcised, it might mean that their partner is less exposed. That's a great hypothesis. It's clear from research now, both from randomized controlled trials and observational studies, that men who are circumcised have uh, fewer infections uh, and are less likely to transmit those to their sexual partners. Uh, But all of those outcomes have been genital infection. We don't yet have any data showing that uh, women who have partners who are circumcised versus those who are not are at reduced risk for acquiring an oral infection while performing oral sex on either a circumcised or uncircumcised male. What about prevention? Okay, you've identified there's a problem. Um, We can screen for these viruses to a limited degree, but what about the vaccines and things like that? Are we in a position to do something about this? I've been very interested in trying to, to find out if the current, currently available HPV vaccines could prevent oral HPV-16 infections. Uh, no one in the field believes that you can get an oral cancer caused by HPV-16 without having a preceding infection. Uh, So if you could demonstrate that the vaccines were effective in preventing an individual from acquiring an oral HPV-16 infection, then it's logical uh, to believe that then that person would be uh, protected against oral cancers. Um, Unfortunately, uh, those studies that were planned have been canceled. It was a uh, business decision on the part of the vaccine manufacturers. So I think at this point... Uh, What we'll have to do is observe populations like in Australia, where the government recognized these vaccines as potentially important as cancer prevention. Uh, They made a very uh, aggressive decision to vaccinate boys and girls in schools and um, did so with uh, tremendous efficiency so that now in the target age range, about 80% of Australian girls and boys in the uh, vaccine-targeted age have been vaccinated. So I think, unfortunately, at this point, we're going to have to um, get information on how the vaccines might reduce oral cancer through passive observation over the next 15, uh, 20, 30 years. Um, Hopefully what we'll see in Australia is they've made an excellent decision for prevention of oral cancers in uh, boys and girls. Let's hope so. Mara Gillison from Ohio State University. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. OCD, or obsessive compulsive disorder, is an extremely disabling condition that causes sufferers to adopt futile behaviours like locking and unlocking doors multiple times, repeated hand washing, or getting dressed and undressed several times before they can actually leave the house. For people for whom behaviour therapies or drugs just don't work, there was previously very little that could be done. But now doctors are reporting significant success using DBS, deep brain stimulation which is carried out by implanting electrodes into patients' brains. Ben Greenberg. The lesions and DBS for OCD that we've been working on affect connections between the thalamus, which is a subcortical nucleus that does lots of things in the brain and projects throughout the prefrontal cortex. We're particularly interested in connections between the thalamus and the bottom part, the ventral part of the prefrontal cortex, which lots of evidence suggests is important in OCD. And you can either cut that region or you implant these electrodes that will enable you to 
do deep brain stimulation. Does the deep brain stimulation effectively render that area of brain inactive then? The, the truth is that we don't know. The original idea, both in movement disorders, where about 70,000 patients worldwide have had DBS, and our work in OCD was that DBS represented some kind of functional lesion. It blocked transmission. That doesn't seem to be right. It's probably better to say that DBS may bias activity in pathways, bias what kinds of information they're likely to carry. The other thing that DBS may do is affect different nodes of the circuit so that they're actually released from abnormal inputs. Lesions may do this too. And one particular region that we're interested in may have to do with uh, the mechanism of action of behavior therapy. Do you have to put the electrodes on both sides of the brain, or do you just stimulate one region? We typically put them bilaterally, both sides of the brain, uh, although uh, it is not uncommon for patients to have the best response when we only use one of them. And we're trying with colleagues in a, uh, an NIH-funded Conti Center, which includes anato- an anatomist actually as the head of this project, to really understand exactly where the most effective stimulation is and then to understand what the network of that stimulation is. So where do you need to go to get where you need to? How do you tune it up so that you know whether the patient's responding or not? How do you know how hard to stimulate? Well, the first thing you do is try to avoid side effects. Uh, and then the second thing you do is look uh, clinically. We don't have, it's not as nice as stimulating for tremor, where, the, you can, where you can see the tremor stop right in front of you. So what we uh, can see is patients changing in subtle ways, and we want them to be subtle, um, in terms of their affect. So they will look like they're more present affectively. They'll look calmer. They will interact with you more. They'll make better eye contact. They'll be more spontaneous in their speech. And those kinds of very nonspecific effects seem to be predictive of a good response to DBS for OCD. And that relates to another thing that's really quite interesting. We do DBS at exactly the same target for major depression without OCD. And so it looks as if a lot of the treatment effects may be nonspecific at the behavioral level, which is also true, I think, of the effects of antidepressants, which we give to all of these kinds of patients. And when you're running the DBS, does that have to continue indefinitely for the person to continue to derive benefit, or is there some kind of brain rewiring that happens around the stimulus? So if it is subsequently withdrawn, then the symptoms stay in abeyance. Uh, It looks as if you need it indefinitely. Uh, Now, we had hopes uh, that if someone then successfully did behavior therapy after uh, DBS, that they would be, we'd be able to withdraw the stimulation. And in fact, we did that and reported on that in a couple of patients. One actually maintained his gains for about six months uh, with DBS off. Uh, Another, probably for uh, that much of time or maybe even longer. But uh, ultimately, in the case we followed, DBS needed to be turned back on. The illness reestablished itself. And practically, do you have to have wires coming out of people's heads and that kind of thing in order to make this happen, or is it very self-contained? Well, it's like a cardiac pacemaker, really. Everything is under the skin, uh, so you put the pacemaker typically in the chest, but instead of the wires going to the heart, they go to the brain under the skin through holes in the skull into the brain. Ben Greenberg from Brown Medical School. Finally, to the most abundant stuff in the atmosphere, nitrogen and why turning it into fertiliser to feed a growing population is also a recipe for trouble. Jim Galloway. All life needs nitrogen in the form of amino acids. We get our amino acids by eating food. If we don't have amino acids, we can't survive, no other species can survive. And so the question is, where do you get your amino acids? A hundred years ago, there was... uh, enough nitrogen naturally occurring in the environment for humans to grow enough food. But in 1898, Sir William Crookes, the president of the British Association of the Advancement of Science, in his annual address, said to the assembled members, there was not enough nitrogen available to feed the civilized world. Now, civilized world, I'm sure he meant the UK, maybe not the US at the time. Not the colonies. (laughs) Not the colonies. Uh, And so that was over 100 years ago. 
and it, it, was, it was just to set the stage for things to come because we just didn't have enough nitrogen. And so that's why that, that led to the invention of the Haber-Bosch process by Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch. I think the World War could have helped there as well. Then. Well, you know, that's fascinating. Uh, Vaclav Schmil has written a, an excellent book called Enriching the Earth, MIT Press, 2001, where he talks about Haber and Bosch and how their art nationalism for Germany really drove them to first invent the process and then scale it up to an industrial level where they could provide munitions for Germany because, of course, Germany was blockaded. But this, of course, enabled them to make ammonia, which is the starting material for all of this fixed nitrogen, all these fertilizers and other compounds we want to make from nitrogen. And that meant that farmers could then begin to put the stuff on the soil. But therein, the rot has set in since, hasn't it? Because now we're in a position where we're putting tons of the stuff all over the place. So, uh, yes, you're absolutely right that the Haber-Bosch process converts into, you know, two nitrogen atoms stuck together in the atmosphere to ammonia. And it is then used as fertilizer, used for some other things too, like bombs, but now today mostly fertilizer. And we needed it because there were just too many people eating too high up the food chain to use just natural sources of nitrogen. And so now we're making about 100 million metric tons of nitrogen fertilizer a year globally. The good news is it's feeding a large percent of the world population. The bad news is that much of it, some would say most of it, is lost to the environment after the food production process. And this is contributing to smog, to acid deposition, to global change, to uh, dead zones in the coast, to stratospheric ozone depletion, a list of environmental issues all connected together because literally one atom of nitrogen put in the atmosphere made active by humans will contribute to all of those problems in sequence. It's called the nitrogen cascade. So of the whatever amount we put of nitrogen onto a field, how much actually goes into the plant and therefore into my mouth and your mouth, and how much doesn't? What fraction goes in each direction? If you're a vegetarian, then the amount of nitrogen that is applied, about 20% would get into your mouth. Okay. Gosh, 80% goes into all these other areas. It, it causes right. seas to have dead zones and so that's on. Right. So that, that's a worry. And if you only ate meat, it's around 10%. goes into your mouth. The other 90% is lost during the food production process. That, that's a major issue. And, and there's various points along the food production pathway where nitrogen is lost and also points along the food production pathway where you can control the losses. So this is not just a bad news, bad news story. This is a story that's saying we need to take some action here. There are some places where we can take effective action, and this should be done not just in the developed world but also especially in the developing world. Tell us about that because do you think it's going to be effective to go up to people in Indonesia and China and say you can't use all this fertilizer because this will be the onward consequence for the environment. We haven't got much evidence that they really care about the environment now, so why should they worry about this? Um, let me break that question up into two parts. Uh, for the developed countries, uh, I think there's a, a strong uh, foundation of environmental awareness that either exists or can be built upon. Uh, for the developing countries, you can tie directly the losses of nitrogen to the environment of those countries and decreased ability to grow food and, 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 and decreased ability to uh, use their coastal zones to raise uh, marine biomass. And so I think connect to showing people if you don't control nitrogen issues, your air is going to get worse, you're going to have huge human health impacts, you're going to have increased losses of nitrogen in the coastal zone, and it's going to impact the very fabric of your human and ecological health. So what could the average person do to make the biggest inroads into reducing their nitrogen footprint like this? The first is to eat only the protein that you need. The USDA-recommended level is 3 uh, kilograms of nitrogen per person per year. The average American eats about 5, and so just by decreasing that 5 down to 3, smaller portions of steak, one egg instead of two eggs, is not rocket science, as they say. That would decrease the amount of nitrogen lost in the environment in the United States by almost 50%. Sensible advice. I should be modifying my diet accordingly. That was Jim Galloway from the University of Virginia. 
And finally, a special message for Aussie fans of The Naked Scientists, because Australia is the first country to be publishing my new book, Stripping Down Science. It's a collection of science myths debunked in a fun and humorous way, and it's not out anywhere else yet. So if you like The Naked Scientists, then please do show your support by picking up a copy at the bookstore. And as an added incentive, somewhat dubiously, you get to see what a partially naked me might look like on the cover. That's it for this time. Normal service resumes next week when we'll be answering all your science questions. Do send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. 